want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode 007. The last thing he said to me on Skype that night was, son, I'm not sure that's going to be soon enough. And Rain, I thought he was talking about the business. Um, so I went to bed that night, obviously concerned about him, uh, and woke up on the, on the Tuesday morning to, to news that would, you know, change my life forever. Um, and, uh, during, during that night when I'd gone to sleep in New York, my, my father committed suicide. Altitude. Altitude. Tower to my expectations, release you, runway 4, left wing 0, 4, 0, and 5, quick takeoff. Sea tide, Altera zero eyes, we're clear for takeoff, clear for the airspace. Fire protector. Uh, my fire ramp curve is at 354. That's the voice of my guest today, Daniel Bond Robinson, who is a former Royal Air Force Tornado pilot. He is the first exchange pilot in the F-22 program, and he is the founder and CEO of Red 6 Aerospace, which is doing some amazing work in the augmented reality realm, which we are going to talk about in this podcast we're definitely going to know Bond a little bit better and the journey it took to climb to the top of the aviation mountain, which is flying the F-22 Raptor, in my opinion, to his decision to separate from the Royal Air Force, to get his MBA from Georgetown, to work in the financial sector. There's a whole bunch to dive in here today, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. But before we get started, a few admin items. First, I'd like to thank everyone who has subscribed to the podcast and left ratings and reviews over there on iTunes. That has been huge. I never would have imagined at this point that we were ahead of 120 uh, ratings and reviews. So thank you. If you haven't done so, please feel free just to go over and hit the subscribe button and leave me a rating or review. That definitely does help out. I'd also like to thank my Patreon supporters. If you're looking for additional content, swing over to patreon.com backslash the Afterburn podcast. Right now, all the Q&A sessions are up there for everyone to listen to. Next, it's never been more important to support small business and I'd like to thank my sponsors for this episode, Squadron Posters and Wingman Watches, both veteran-owned companies and all their products built right here in the United States. Not only am I a fan of Squadron Posters, but I've been a customer of theirs for about four years now. A few years ago, a member of my squadron worked with their poster design team to build a custom poster for our squadron, the 77th Fighter Squadron. After seeing the end result, not only did I order our squadron poster, but I ordered the posters of all my previous units. Squadron Posters is a great way to capture your memories and showcase the places you have traveled, where you have lived, and some of the amazing things you've accomplished. Check out SquadronPosters.com and their truly unique artwork. Let Squadron Posters custom art help you share your journey today. Use the code RAIN10 for 10% off your order of $59 or more. Next, I also like to thank Wingman Watches for sponsoring this podcast. I'm excited to have them as a sponsor. I have four of their watches and absolutely love them. If you're looking to build a timepiece that is truly unique, I highly recommend Wingman Watches. 
Their design team will take care of all the hard work from taking your concept and shaping it into reality to something that you absolutely love, but they'll also handle all the logistics of organizing the group order, collecting the payment and dealing with all the necessary logistics that go into it. They're perfect for law enforcement, fire department, medical sports teams, military, you name it. If you have an organization and you want to build a custom watch for your team, I highly recommend Wingman Watches. Let them build your watch today. Go over to wingmanwatch.com and start your order. You can mention my name and receive a discount on that custom order. Or if you see a watch that you already love that's in stock, you can use the code RAIN10 and receive 10% off that purchase. All right, that's enough of the admin stuff for today. Now to get rolling into the podcast with Daniel Bond Robinson. Awesome, Bond. Thanks for joining me on the podcast, man. I'm really excited to talk about uh, your journey uh, throughout life and aviation. Sure. Why don't you kind of start out a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and how you got your start flying fast jets? Yeah, uh, it's probably an unlikely uh, story. It's, it's good to be on the, the podcast, so thanks for the invitation. Uh, so Dan Robinson, uh, course I'm Bond out of the U.S. Air Force. Thanks to the U.S. Air Force. It's my last <laughs> of <buddies>. um, <laughs> uh, We don't really do call signs in the U.K., so that was definitely interesting. Look, I was born and grew up, grew up in the uh, northeast of England um, and uh, in a town written up in The Economist as uh, the Detroit of the U.K. Uh, definitely a, a kind of working-class town, coal mining, shipbuilding were the, were the industries back in the day. I, there wasn't really that much to do as a kid. My dad would take me to the movies as a kid, and uh, the first movie I ever saw was Superman with Christopher Reeve. And and it was that right there, like seeing seeing Superman flying down, you know, Fifth Avenue, Manhattan, kind of ignited a, 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 a passion for flight. I suppose it was with me. So it was obvious that uh, from being a kid that that, that, I, that that was it. I was going to do something with, with flight. I guess the next movie I saw, almost like all of us of our generation, was Star Wars. And 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 whilst I thought uh, lightsabers were pretty cool for me, it was X-wing fighters. And so I'd spend hours in the garden, like building an X-wing fighter in the mud, right? So it's literally a, a, a mud cockpit with bones for switches and sticks for, uh, for flight controls. Um, and then, of course, uh, I think I was like 11 years old, 12 years old maybe, and, and uh, I was away on a vacation with my, my family. And, uh, my sister and I would, every afternoon, we'd go to a, a little beach bar, and the, the, the owner of the beach bar seemed to take a liking to us, and he'd, he'd give us a, a coke. And we drink a Coke and, and every, every day have pirated VHS copies of movies. And they show them on a black and white TV up in the corner. One day this, uh, this movie Top Gun came on. And, uh, and when I saw it, I, I, I didn't realize that was actually a job at the time. I was like, holy God. Um, I got really excited and started, uh, started reading about fighter airplanes and, and, uh, and, and really knew at that point that I, that I wanted to be a pilot. Um, I was, I suppose as a kid, had a rational fear of being killed. Uh, so I, I wrestled with the, do I want to be a fighter pilot, uh, question. And, uh, and one day I, I had a monumental talk with myself at age 13 years old and decided I was no longer going to be scared of dying. And, and that was it. I, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. So then I started looking into it and figured out, uh, I'm sure it's the same here in the US, but some in the UK, it was, uh, it was actually pretty tricky to, to become a pilot. I, I wasn't going to the best school and, uh, you know, it's uh, surrounded with a lot of distractions, let's put it that way. So I had to figure out a way to get myself out of where I was to uh, Cranwell Air Force Academy in the UK. And so you're talking about getting into school, but I assume like the area you grew up in, would you classify as kind of like rough or did you have any mentors to kind of guide you through that process or is it no kidding? Yeah. You just trying to figure it out. I, it was, it was definitely me trying to figure it out. I would say that look, my, my, it was definitely, 
I would say a, a difficult um, sort of environment to go to school in, and you know, a lot of distractions. But I, uh, I had a really supportive uh, mom and dad that were, that were really encouraging. And I, I, I took a job when I was a kid, uh, being a milkman. And uh, I, I don't know if you have the same here in the US, but in essence, I used to get up at four o'clock in the morning and, and get on the back of a milk cart and drive the streets delivering milk to people's houses super early. And that, this is when I was 14, 15 years old, maybe 16. Um, and I, and I, I made the monumental sum of 40 pounds a week for doing that. And it was, you know, kicking my butt doing it that early in the morning, but I would save up my money. And, uh, and I, I saved up and got my first flying lesson. And, uh, I, I went in a, in a mighty success in 150. And I think so much of it for me personally was confidence or, uh, or lack thereof. Um, and as I go through the flying training system and, and I, I ultimately emerge towards, towards the end of it and I'm, I'm still somehow hanging in there, I always felt that I, you know, had potential above that, which I was, I was kind of performing at. I was, I was doing pretty good, but I, I, I was just a little bit underconfident. And I remember having one ride as I, uh, as I came out of the flying training system that went really well for me. Uh, and that was kind of like an inflection point in, in my career. It was kind of a, a shot of injection in the arm that, that really gave me a little bit of self-belief that I felt I could actually go do this and do this pretty well. And so, you know, I guess it was a, it was a long old time, but maybe around five years later or something, we pop out of the, uh, the end of uh, flight training, uh, having flown the, a bunch of airplanes, the, the Firefly, the, the Takano, and, and then the, the Hawk, which is a little British Aerospace Hawk, which is what the Red Arrows fly, it's like a little sports car, you know, pretty basic inside, but, you know, 420, 450 knot airplane, flying around low level in the UK, and in bad weather, leaving a pair, and hitting a couple of targets. It was, you know, it was pretty rewarding airplane to fly. Um, came out of there, and all I ever wanted to do was be a fighter pilot, and, uh, and the only fighter we had in the UK at the time was the, the Tornado F3. So uh, really pushed hard to, to go fly that. Uh, calling the F3 as a fighter is maybe a stretch. Um, but it was, you know, it was what we had at the time. And uh, I was just, just happy to be there. And then all of a sudden I I arrive and I'm on the, what we call the Tornado F3 operational conversion unit. And that was it. I was I was there flying a, a frontline airplane and going through my combat ready workup. And, it was uh, when I when I look back at uh, the pathway, it's probably an unlikely pathway, an unlikely sort of uh, success story, I guess. But um, having been this kid in the northeast of England, I'm, I'm now suddenly flying tornadoes for the uh, for the RAF, and that was the that was the sort of genesis and the, the sort of pathway to uh, the frontline flying airplanes. For when you mentioned the confidence issues, was it what what drove that? Why didn't you have the confidence walking in the door? Was it because kind of grew up in a poor town, or or what was it? You think? Yeah, I, I think so, and I think I, I just didn't really have the network, and uh, like a bunch of the guys that uh, that I sort of arrived into training with, they, they all seemed to know each other, and they all had that vernacular and that language, and uh, and and you know just the inside scoop that that I, that was absolutely alien to me. Um, and, and I think I definitely, you know, in, in the UK, it's interesting because there's, there's definitely a, a sort of, you know, whether perceived or, or actual, I suppose it's actual, you know, socioeconomic difference between the north of England and the, and, uh, and the south of England. And certainly where I came from was, uh, um, I would say one of the most, ch- more challenging sort of environments for sure. Um, and, and there, there was like a real cultural issue of, um, you know, it, 
on, on the one hand, some people would want to see you do well, but not too well. And, you know, if you went out there and, and, and left, that was, which, which was familiar and, and you did anything different or anything, you, you know, you, you tried or you strive for something, uh, great. There was certainly, a, um, a subculture within that sort of area that would, would seek to pull you down. And I think, I think there were, there were a number of those influences around me. Um, and such that when I, you know, when I did arrive there and I didn't really have the language or the network or the, uh, perhaps as I thought the pedigree, uh, compared to what my, my vision of a Royal Air Force fighter pilot was, I just felt really underconfident, you know, and, uh, and that was a real struggle for me in the, in the early years until I got to the tornado. Um, and when I got to the tornado, um, it, it, it turns out that I was, I was reasonable at, uh, BFM and I could, I could never really explain why. I mean, of course, I went through all of the uh, the curriculum and I was taught the FM and all that kind of stuff, but I just seemed to have a, a decent understanding of the of the picture. And uh, there was there was one ride I remember very well. I was I was I think I was doing um, offensive, what you'd call offensive six Ks, but the ride went very well, and so the instructor offered me the opportunity to do a high aspect against another IT at the time. And, uh, and we'd be doing two circle fighting and, uh, you know, there was no reason to expect me to do anything other than two circle fighting. So we do this high aspect, more or less unbriefed and arrive at the merge. And, and for some reason, I, I see the, the sun high in the sky and the guy cuts across my tail and I hadn't been thought it, hadn't really thought about it, hadn't briefed it. I, I see the sun. I pull right up into it straight, go into the vertical and come up over the top and the, uh, sure chance the instructor goes blind. Of course, I, I start giggling and <laughs> come over the top. Continue. And, yeah, continue those fatal words. And uh, the instructor in the backseat who became a very good friend of mine was teaching me. He was just thrilled that I was, you know, about to kick kick uh, another instructor's ass. Right? And uh, yeah, I came over the top and uh, and got really lucky that day. And it was it was fun because I, I didn't realize how lucky I'd been. Right? It was it was a pure one off, but it gave me a shot of injection, uh, an injection of confidence into my arm. And I I, I remember it was like a a sliding doors moment in my career. Um, I got an injection of confidence, and um, from that point forward, my my self belief and I think my my uh, performances um, increased exponentially from that, from a, a just a little injection of confidence, and that was it. And I, I think about that a lot, and I thought about it a lot as an instructor pilot later in life. You know, certainly we've all come from that culture whereby you know that people are scared. Get to death in the debrief, you know, of, of failure, of screw, of, of being that guy. Um, and I really tried my hardest as I sort of end up later in life to, to be the opposite of that as an IT and, and really to encourage guys to, to, to engender a culture of it's, it's okay to fail, it's okay to make mistakes. You don't have to be afraid of the debrief, let's just have collective ownership of it. And, and, and I wish that that culture had existed a little more as, as I was coming through. And I think, you know, would have served a lot of, uh, a lot of students very well. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a tough thing to teach someone. And in the time period you're talking about is a relatively lengthy time period. And sometimes there's no replacement for just getting the reps and kind of see that, Hey, you know what? I'm actually good at this. One thing I always found, you know, the jet doesn't discriminate and there is like an innate ability. Some people have eye hand coordination, left hand, right hand, and then just conceptually can get the 3d environment of flying nothing replaces training. And obviously the more you train, the better you're going to get at it. But at a core level, when everyone starts out, you know, everyone is at an even playing field, more or less. Some people might come in with 
I actually saw guys come into pilot training with like 3000 hours yep. and they were absolutely terrible. Yep. But then yep. the flip side, some brand new off the street who have no idea, someone kind of like yourself, like walking into a group that has a very, I would say a deeper level of aviation experience and they end up kicking everyone's butt uh, in it. So I think, yeah, I don't know how you tell someone to have the confidence in there, but I guess it's, you know, have that dedication, have that persistence and go out there and get it. Um, and just kind of look to those that you know, went ahead of you and you're a prime example of, of that story, which I think is fascinating. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, it's, there's a, there's a real nuance in teaching, right? And there's a real nuance in, in instructing. And it is, of course, it is by definition a competitive environment that we all exist and live in and, and for good reason because it's, it's a high stakes game. Um, and so there are standards, no doubt about it. There are standards that have to be met. And if you're not meeting them, then, you know, obviously there, there are, there are implications of that. I guess what I'm talking about is I saw a lot of talent, um, that, I, that I personally felt for the sake of a little bit, or a little different approach or a little bit of, you know, uh, carrot rather than stick. We could take that talent, nurture it and, and use it to really good effect. And, and at times I saw that stuff wasted. And so it was, it was something that I was very interested in just from my own personal, I guess, uh, background and my own insecurities going through flying training. When I, when I was in a position that I was, I was teaching and instructing, I really, I really tried very carefully to get that balance right between that there are standards that we have to meet and there's no way around that. Uh, and really understanding or trying to, to, to look into the individual psychology and, and try to figure out the human being and, and what is going on such that we did not unnecessarily waste that talent, right? Um, and I, I think that was a, there was, I always appreciated when I saw instructors with um, the sort of emotional intelligence to understand that nuance uh, and adapt their approach accordingly. And I, I think that's basically what I'm saying. Kind of switch gears here just a little bit. You do really well in the rest of your aviation career. You end up going to the UK Fighter Weapons School and then become the first non-American to fly the F-22 in, a, in the USAF uh, exchange program. Yeah. I was, what did that, what did that process look like going through and getting, getting to the Raptor? Honestly, it was, it was kind of a whirlwind of, you know, when I, when I look back uh, and I think about going to weapons school in the UK, I was, I, I think I was probably um, somewhat of a test case in, in, in over in the UK at the time. I went to fight a weapons school really early. Um, I mean, right at the end of, of my first tour on the airplane, which in those days was very early. It's more common now because we just don't have the experience level. Um, and I will say, look, in all honesty, it was a, it was a huge privilege. It was a huge gamble. I remember my, my squadron boss saying at the time, this is a, this is a gamble for you. Um, you know, you're, you're going early. You don't really have the experience. Um, but I suppose I was reasonable with the airplane. Um, and I, I have to make a distinction here, and you know, the benefit of hindsight and humility as opposed to posturing, gesturing, you know, when you're young and you're, you just want to be the, you know, the best guy in the squad and all that kind of stuff. When I look back, I, I go, yeah, I was, I was pretty, pretty reasonable with the airplane, but I don't think I really had the experience at the time to go to uh, weapons school and really excel. And I'm not sure that anyone ever really excels at weapons school, right? It's all relative, but. Um, yeah. you know, when I, when I went over there, when I, when I got to the school, I, you know, I was, I was good with the airplane. I was, I was pretty decent at BFM, but that just tactical level maturity, um, the, the ability to, um, you know, see the big picture, lead good big BVR, you know, LSE type missions. 
um, was definitely something that was a challenge for me. And I would say, in all honesty, that the instructors were uh, were very patient with me. Um, I think recognized the the, the broader sort of um, maybe ability that I that I had, and that um, they were. I, I think they gave me the benefit of the doubt at times for sure. I, I say that with all humility because there were times on the course that I, I really struggled. But look, I, ultimately I, I made it through, and I think again, you you know, you go through something like that, and it, 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 here's weapon school in the summer. You go to work for six months or eight months, and you get told you suck every single day, and you come out of it, and then you realize that you're actually okay, you know, as you thought you were. And so, and that's pretty much weapon school in the summer, right? And, and but uh, you realize just when you come out of that. You go back to the front line, how much you've learned. So, um, having made it through the course, I went back to the squadron and, uh, and I really tried to take the standards that weapons school embodies in you, but really try to put my own stamp on how I thought you should teach and approach, um, uh, leading a squadron tactically or, 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 or teaching, uh, you know, um, the, the tactical elements of, of bringing young guys through and, and even experienced guys in the squadron and really trying to bring my own culture to that and my own, my own sort of thoughts across on, on being that, that sort of influential role in the squadron. Um, I like to think I got that balance pretty much, you know, it was, it was pretty decent. Um, but yeah, one of the benefits of, of going to weapon school is you can expect, I guess, great opportunities coming out of it. And so I'd, uh, I'd actually apply for an exchange um, to fly uh, Hornets off the carriers of the U.S. Navy. And I remember the, distinctly being told the news because uh, we, we'd been night flying that night and I was holding on and holding on for the, for the news. And, and the boss called the whole squadron into the, uh, the bar and the officer's mess. And the officer's mess in the U.K. is fantastic, yeah, fantastic experience. You know, the, the culture over there and the, the sort of epicenter of social activity around base. It was really good, particularly when there's a bunch of fighter squadrons on base. So we, we definitely... We did that as well as anyone in, in the RAF. And so we, we were all in there after night flying and he goes, look, there's a big announcement here coming up. You all know that Dan's been shortlisted the F-18 exchange. I think there was three of us on the shortlist. And uh, he said, uh, well, you know, he's worked hard. He's been to weapons school. You can expect good, good opportunities. I've got some news. And I was like, here it is. I'm going to go to the Navy and fly uh, F-18s. And he said, yeah, on this occasion, he's been unsuccessful. Dude, I was devastated. Like I thought, like I was, I thought that exchange was mine. And he said, "Yeah, he's been unsuccessful." And everyone started commiserating me, and I was, yeah, I was pretty upset. And uh, and as they were commiserating me, the boss chipped in. He said, "Hey, uh, there's that's not all. There's a reason he's been unsuccessful." And so we all stopped and listened. And he said, "The reason he didn't make the F-18 exchange is he's just been selected as the first ever non-American F-22 pilot." And, wow. and I was standing there with a pint of Guinness in my hand and I, I dropped my Guinness. And the next thing I know, the whole squadron on top of me beating the crap out of me. And I, I'm on the floor, I'm on the floor, the, I'm on the floor in the bar. I, and I come to you and the boss, I'll never forget, is standing above me. And I looked up at him and I said, is it true? And he said, yeah. He goes, it's very well deserved. And he, he grabbed my hand and pulled me up and, and uh, ring. He said something to me then, which I, I often smile about now. Um, he said, Young man, this exchange will change your life in ways that you, can, you can't even possibly imagine yet. And as it pertains to ultimately where I am now, and I guess what we're ultimately here to talk about in, in Red Six and what we're doing right now, truer words could not have been spoken. And I often back and, think back and smile at that, uh, at that uh, exchange. And so, yeah, uh, four, four weeks later, I'm 
I'm sitting on the, um, the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in uh, Washington, D.C., having moved to America, going, oh, my God, I'm going to go five turn twos. And that was it. That's incredible. And talk about the amazing delivery from your boss, just knocking you down and bringing you right back up. I love it. Well, we, def- <laughs> we definitely had that back and forth between us. We, uh, we, we had a, I think we had a, a really healthy mutual respect, but uh, we, we definitely had a, uh, um, let's say, an interesting relationship. I, I, I think back and smile. I, I had a lot of affection for that guy, actually. Yeah, that's awesome. And talk about dodging a bullet. You could have been floating around the, the world on a boat with 5,000 other dudes. So. Yeah, imagine that. I know fate worse than a fate worse than death. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was the transition like? Kind of compare, contrast the training in the RAF versus U.S. Air Force. Um, so I, I think there's a number of things. Right? So firstly, what was it like culturally like arriving on the Raptor? I mean, if you, you have to understand when I when I came to the Raptor, I, I was the first non-American, but I was one of the, the first off guys as well. You know, there was a tiny amount of guys flying the squadron, flying the airplane at the time, and the first operational squadron was just standing up at uh, Langley. It was the 27th, and so to be in so early into the program was was incredible. It was an incredible privilege, and you know, just, I, I was. I, I still to this day pinch myself. So I arrived at Langley and uh, I'll be quite honest. I mean, some guys knew I was coming. So other guys didn't know. And I got the dress code wrong day one. Everyone's in flight suits. I turned up my best blues. I mean, so it was it, it, it <laughs> very was, British of you. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely, I, I got away with it. I think because I was British, right? And I had a janky hat. So uh, <laughs> the, the guys were pretty cool. But uh, yeah, but honestly, I, I cannot speak highly enough of, of the individuals that welcomed me to Langley initially. And, um, I think I was at Langley with, um, for about four weeks or so before my, my Kindle course came up. And, um, and so I got, got to sit in the simulators. I remember walking into the hangar for the first time and seeing that airplane. It was like a scene from a movie. It was in a, a pristine white hangar, F-22 sitting there front and center, big American flag behind it. And I thought, I, I looked back and thought about the tornado and just started laughing. It's an impressive machine and then everything that goes along with it. In the tornado, did you guys do a lot of air to air, or was that a challenge transitioning to the Raptor? Uh, well, so I, I was a pure air to air guy. So there's two versions of the okay. tornado, right? Uh, back there, I mean, that, I think that's what's retired now. But the, the tornado GR4 was the bomb dropper, and uh, the tornado F3 was the air to air platform. Gotcha. Uh, and it, it absolutely struggled, um, you know, in the air to air environment. In its in its later days, as it was going out of service, we at least were firing MMs and and as rams, so we we had some decent sticks that we could throw around, but you know, when I look back and, and you compare and contrast to, you know, what's out there, even fourth gen platforms now, it was it was a long way behind. And, and certainly the, the the difference between going to, from the tornado to the the raptor was was astonishing. You do one assignment in the raptor and then you get out of the REF out of that exchange tour, correct? Yeah, I did. I did. And that was definitely a uh, that was definitely a, a shock. I think um, there, there were a number of things going on in my life at the time and a lot linked to my family, which we'll ultimately, I guess, talk about. But, um, uh, for me, it was, um, I, I knew that I, I, there were, there were things that I wanted to do beyond the Air Force for sure. I think at my, at, at my core, um, I love flying. I love the guys, girls on the, uh, on, on the squadron. Uh, and obviously it's a huge privilege to do a job like that for sure. But I knew there was just so much more that I wanted to do outside of the military. Um, compounded with a number of things that were going on in my, my personal life, the things to my family that were, I was definitely struggling with at the time and, uh, decided I, it was the right time for me to, to leave. Um, it was definitely a shock to, uh, 
everyone in the in the RAF, um, and and I absolutely understood that. But ultimately, um, it was the right decision for me for sure. And so I decided I was I was going to get out and uh, I was going to go to business school. I really had a good relationship with Georgetown contacts I'd had through the British Embassy up in Washington D.C. and applied to uh, to go there to go to business school and, and got a date in a in a class at business school there, which I think was about six months later or something like that. So. I took some time, moved over to uh, Madrid, put myself into language school in Madrid, and uh, studied Spanish at Madrid for about six months before coming back to the States to do my MBA. And, and that was just a, a wonderful experience and, and a real contrast from a career in the military. And I know there are a bunch of people out there that have made similar transitions and will, will resonate with this. I think, you know, you're, you're learning languages, the language of finance, whatever it is, that, that is fundamentally alien to you. And again, I found myself back in the situation where I felt out of my depth, underconfident, and that, you know, people were speaking a different language that I didn't understand. But then over a period of time, as the course goes, you go through the course and you realize the lessons you've learned as a career in military aviation as it pertains to management, leadership, and all of those fundamentals really start to come to the, to, to the fore. And, and you realize that once you get this language of business down, fundamentally the same lessons, right, of, of leadership and management. It's it's not rocket science. And uh, uh, that was an interesting sort of observation, I guess, having come from a military career into a business a business school environment, I suspect it's, it's, a, it's something or a narrative that people that have made the same transition may resonate with, you know. Getting out, you spent the last 10 or so years of your life honing a skill set, and now you're taking a hard left and jumping into business which is completely foreign to everything you've really done. You mentioned kind of the concepts and things like that, that you learn in the military translates once or once you're able to translate those skill sets into business, it's essentially all the same thing. When you got out of business school, what did you go do and what did that look like? Well, I mean, look, I think you're actually on the money there in terms of you know, your assessment of business school. As I said, it was, a, it was definitely, it's like learning another language, right? But, when you when you come out of business school, it was kind of interesting because I was in business school in the middle of the you know the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. So um, beggars couldn't be choosers, and, and there were a lot of people coming out of business school that were really struggling to find their next their next role in life. I mean, I guess on the one hand, being in business school at that time was great timing because the economy was terrible, but then coming out of it, the economy was still pretty terrible, and uh, and you know options were frankly few and far between. Now, I was very lucky in that I, I was uh, lucky enough to get a job in uh, in New York City in the world of finance and actually in private wealth management. And uh, I, it wasn't something that I was particularly interested in. It wasn't something that I was passionate about. But I, I knew that I wanted to go live in New York. And uh, I, I knew that it was a great, I was you know very lucky to land a job that was, you know, relatively speaking, high paying compared to coming out of the military, et cetera, et cetera. And it would afford me the opportunity to bed down into uh, into a life in New York. Um, and so I, I took it. And so I ended up working finance for a, a year or so and moved to New York. And I'll be totally honest, I, I absolutely detested the job. Um, and, and coming from the culture that we, we come from in, uh, you know, in, in the airport, when you're working with just, eye-watching talent that are highly motivated individuals that, that you just love like brothers and sisters to being stuck in a cubicle uh, in, in an office in New York City doing something that you, you don't care about. If anyone is listening and I think about doing it, think very carefully uh, because it was, it, was, it was definitely not for me, for sure. Uh, but again, a really fascinating insight into the difference um, uh, in, in both culture 
and uh, leadership um, ability outside of the Air Force or outside of the military. And it was a stark contrast of some lessons learned that were, that were good and really bad as well. So it was a, it was a fascinating insight, a really a really good education, but ultimately it was never going to be for me. I think at the time, though, what was the great thing about New York was I, I, I made an amazing amazing group of friends, loved the city, really sort of took full advantage of, of living in New York City and, and uh, ended up getting into, um, uh, I guess, what became my, my passion from BFM, which was Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, I, I don't know if anyone knows anything about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but I, I ended up living around the corner from a, a gentleman called Henzo Gracie and his academy. Um, and, and I didn't realize at the time, but basically the epicenter, uh, probably the best academy in the world for Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And I lived two blocks from it. So it, that was really important for me. And it was really important for a number of reasons. I think one of the, you know, when you do leave the fighter community, and I know people will resonate with this. Yes, you miss flying airplanes, but, but more than that, you really miss the camaraderie of the guys and the girls on the, on the squadron. Um, and that can be a massive gulf in people's lives. Um, for me, finding Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and anchoring around, uh, you know, learning a new skill set, which was in essence like BFM, three-dimensional problem solving, really resonated. But the sense of community and camaraderie from that was really, really important to me that, that really helped that transition out of the military. And I think that's something that I would imagine most people resonate with when they leave because it's a big, big, big old gap in your life. Um, so a, a, a really interesting chapter. Um as it happens, you know, we're, we're smack bang in the middle of the financial crisis. And this is where life really takes a, a detour for me. So I'm, I'm working in finance and uh, I get a call one day from my, my dad. And uh, I mentioned that I'd grown up in a, in a pretty difficult town. My dad had started a business when, when I was a kid. It grew to be a pretty decent employer in, in the town. And it was in um, construction. Um, and when I was going through my uh, my MBA, um, I, I'd actually written my thesis on my, my dad's business back in the UK. Now, it would be fair to say that my dad and I had an extremely complex uh, relationship, certainly from, from being a kid all the way growing up. It was it was both incredible and, and, and really challenging, let's put it that way. Um, but certainly the closest individual in my in my life. Um, and, and he hadn't been doing well for a, a number of years, and certainly towards the um, the end of my uh, my tour on the raft and through finance in Georgetown, he was really struggling. And so I arrived at this junction, I think November of 2011. I get a call one night uh, from my dad on Skype, and he said, uh, "Hey son, everything you said was going to happen with this business has, has happened. I'm uh, we're, we're going bankrupt. I'm losing everything. I'm I'm really lost. Can you can you come back and help me?" And uh, at the time, I remember I'd had a broken shoulder, and I was, I'd had shoulder surgery from jiu-jitsu. And I, and I looked at him, and he looked so lost. And I said, yeah, Dad, I, yeah, I'll come back. I'll, I'll take the first flight tomorrow. Um, I'll be with you on Wednesday. But if I come back, you've got, you've got to let me get into the business and, and get out of my way and let me look at this objectively. Uh, but I'll be back with you on Wednesday morning. Uh, so this was on a Monday night. And the last thing he said to me on Skype that night was, Son, I'm not sure that's going to be soon enough. And uh, Rain, I thought he was talking about the business. Um, so I went to bed that night, obviously concerned about him, uh, and woke up on the, on the Tuesday morning to, to news that would, you know, change my life forever. During, during that night when I'd gone to sleep in New York, my, my father committed suicide. Um, and I, I woke up on Tuesday morning to, you know, my life being completely swept upside down. Um, yeah. 
it was just a, I, I mean, I, I'm sure there are people that have listened that have been through something similar, but uh, an unbearable sort of an unbearable amount of pain and and, and news to receive. Um, and obviously, I had my mom and and I had three sisters uh, back in the UK as well. So it was a it was an interesting moment for me because I I called home and of course it's, it's devastation. And uh, and I knew I had to go back, and I knew at that point forward, my life in the U.S. at the time being was was over. My life in New York was over, and um, it was a new mission. Um, so I flew back to the U.K., um, took the first flight back, walked into uh, walked into a, obviously devastation. Um, my mom, my sister, was obviously devastated, and it turns out that. Um, the the business that that he had was going bankrupt. We were, we were right on the brink, and uh, we had about a, somewhere between 150 and 200 employees uh, staring at me, going, "What are we going to do?" And so it's interesting, isn't it? Because when you you look, I don't know if you ever read Steve Jobs' book, and Steve Jobs talks about connecting the dots in life. I mean, he argues that it's very difficult yeah. to connect the dots looking forward in your life, right? So. You have to follow a passion, a journey, something, understanding that at some point you'll arrive at a junction in your life. And I'm completely paraphrasing right now, but you'll arrive at a junction in your life yeah, where, where you look back and you'll, you'll be in the right place at the right time with the right experience, education, contacts, and network to to do what is being asked of you and those dots will connect. And it's happened twice in my life and one of those moments was then. And so it occurs to me that I've, I've had this fairly unique background of leadership, management, education, finance, um, the question was, did I did I have the character, I guess, to, to stay in that particular fight? And I thought it was necessary. Um, and, and I simply just couldn't turn my back on, on uh, obviously, my family in the first instance or, or the business. And so I, uh, I took over that business and uh, and got to work. I arrived on, on the Wednesday into the UK. I went to business, uh, I went to, into the business on the Thursday, uh, spoke to, you know, almost a couple hundred people. Uh, you can imagine a construction company, big burly builders, and it was not a, a dry, dry eye in the uh, in the house. And everyone loved my dad. They'd been with him for over thirty years. Some people, and uh, and I had to break the news to them and tell them the reality of what had happened, and then um, mm. and, and talk to them about, okay, guys, we're in a lot of trouble here, um, and we got to get ourselves out, and we'll, we'll we'll do that as a team. But ultimately, it comes down to what we decide today. Um, and uh, I said, look, I'm, I'm going to ask you guys to sacrifice collectively as a team. But, uh, the apprentices, your, your bosses will, will sacrifice more than you. The managers will sacrifice more than the bosses. Directors more than managers. I'll sacrifice more than anyone. Um, and, and so I know what I'm doing. I know how to get us out of it. And uh, um, I want you to follow me. And, you know, to a, to a person... They, uh, I was lucky enough to to inspire them to to follow me on that journey, and and they did. And then I got into the, the sort of <laughs> sat down, looked at the books of the business, and went, "Oh God, how am I going to yeah. how am I going to get us out of this?" And uh, and so began a an entirely new journey in leadership. But uh, a lot of, again, a lot of really incredible lessons learned because um, it was a, it was a fundamental transformation of a business. Uh, organizational change from top to bottom, from how we clean the coffee bars to what ultimate our strategy is and everything else in between. And you're dealing with your dad's death and overcoming that. But even though it's a family business, 
you had no experience in it, correct, prior to this point? I mean, I had grown up in and around the business. When I wrote my um, my master's thesis, I wrote it on, on my dad's business and, and that industry as a whole and where I felt we should go to, to survive. Um, and I handed it in to the professor and, and the feedback I got was basically, hey, Dan, this sucks. This is never going to work. <laughs> and so when when I, which was the story of my life, but when I, uh, when I take, uh, I, so I take over the business and I just got this thesis and I go, I wonder if that professor was right. But I don't think he is. Um, and so I, I took that thesis and applied it to the, uh, to the business. And it was a fundamental of fundamentals of a business plan. Did you have people that, I know you said that were skeptical at first, but did you have any issues convincing or, you know, garnering the trust of those who are skeptics of you just stepping into the business? How did you approach that? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. Um, so I, I had people that were extremely uh, supportive and really loyal to me. And I had people that were in really senior positions within the business that were, um, I mean, fundamentally against everything that I that I was about and, and what I was trying to do with the business. And it was largely based on ego, fear, and accountability because there was there were senior leaders in the, in the business that had frankly taken the business to a to a a point of no return and and there were going to be repercussions inevitably for that uh, you know the, it was it was balancing you know when you're leading you're balancing three things right you're balancing the the, the, the the task against the needs of the team against the needs of the individual and, and at that point it was for me it was okay we are task oriented and we are team oriented right and, and individuals i would do my best to to um to take care of them and to to, you know, to treat them well, but fundamentally they had to get on board because we didn't have time for huge amounts of collaboration in those early days. We were, we were right on the brink. And, and you turned that business around. It obviously takes a little bit of time, but the end result is success. Yeah, it was. I mean, look, it was, it was ex- extremely demanding and extremely difficult, and I certainly didn't turn it around by myself. So over time, I, I had to transform the team. Uh, and bring in certain individuals that were that were going to support me in, in my vision, in my sort of operational intentions. Um, and so I think in in the early days it was a I, I, I really sort of I talked about sort of being abs- absolutely sort of directed in my leadership approach. As we started to sort of turn the corner and pivot the business into another aspect of the industry, and we started to get a little bit more breathing room, I, I started to sort of relax my approach a little bit and, and bring in really talented people to surround me and, and support me because understanding with the, you know, understanding what you don't know is really important. And and whilst I had a, a, a really good sense of where we had to go, why we had to go and how we had to get there, once once I had done that and repositioned us, I realized pretty quickly that I didn't know what I was talking about in terms of uh, actual, <laughs> actual execution, right? And that's fine. I didn't yeah. know. I didn't necessarily need. Of course, I learned, right? I, I had a, a pretty decent handle, but I needed people that were far better than than I was, or far more experienced than I was in that particular industry. Yeah, I think Wayne, there's something interesting that I think will resonate with the mantra of the of the Weapon School. Uh, you know, the mantra of the Weapon School: be be humble, approachable, incredible. Is is really solid solid guidance that, that transcends you know, fighter combat it, in, into every aspect of life and, and business. And, and I think humility um, and recognizing, you know, what you're good at, what you're not good at, where you need support and not posturing. And, and, and you know, if, if you embrace that man, mantra, the, the humility aspect of it is is incredibly empowering uh, and incredibly important to uh, to success. 
Um, and, and, and that's guidance that, yeah, the weapons school give out for sure. But I think that it is absolutely applicable to multiple aspects of life and certainly business. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny you mention it. Uh, Chaos Davis, who's actually a uh, F-16 weapons instructor right now at Nellis. I had him on the episode last week and uh, we actually let in with a discussion about that because I could not agree more. That that mantra of humble, approachable, credible is applicable to every aspect of life, I think. And those who embrace it uh, really, I think, will find find success with the the hard work that goes along with it. But I agree. Yeah, obviously smarter people than me came up with it, but it's so simple. So now kind of talk about what you're doing now with Red Six. So obviously the family business, you, you kind of brought life back into it. But I think probably aviation is in the, in your blood uh, and now business is tied to it. So what led you to Red Six? And can you tell me a little bit about Red Six and what, what you guys are doing today? Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I'm, I'm, I'm really proud. And it's funny because I look back on all the, the challenges I've been through. And, and, and again, you come back to connecting the dots and I arrive at the junction now, which is, you know, is just a, a wonderful intersection of, of skill sets and experience in, in my life. Look, I think the genesis of Red Six started back when I was flying the Raptor. In fact, it probably started when I was flying the Tornado. And that was my frustration with the ability to get the Red Air to train against. Um, because, you know, in simple terms, as, as most of your listeners will know, but for non-combat aviators, every time we go up and fly, we need to want to go up and fly train, train against and. And that's a multi-billion dollar year problem that we are failing to, to provide. I think it's, it's compounded by a number of, of issues. Firstly, the pilot shortage. We're over 2,000 pilots short on the front line. Everyone's working long days and, and we're desperately short. We can't produce pilots long enough. We can't keep them long enough. Uh, and it's a critical, it, it's at a critical stage right now. I think secondly as well for that is, um, whilst we've been involved in, in conflict in the Middle East for, uh, you know, 20 years or so now, um, we've seen two things happen geopolitically. You've seen the reemergence of Russia onto the world stage and proliferation and pace of innovation coming out of China. Um, so much so that that once technological advantage that we always felt we held is no more. And you can argue that actually we're, we're on par and in some instances it may be worse than that. So it represents a, a crisis for us. And, and when you look at, you know, fundamentally where's DOD policy and where's the, what is the DOD's defense strategy for 2018? One of those, the strength of that is we need, need to be able to defeat a near-peer near threat. Um, we want to be able to do that by, you know, deterring them. Uh, and to deter, we need to be credible. And to be credible, we need to be able to train and, and prevail against any kind of threat. And so one of the things that I often lamented was the inability to train against near-peer adversaries. Because gone are the days where we can use Vipers 18s and, and, uh, and 15s to to simulate things like Super 57 or J20 or you know, the likes. And so I, the, the genesis of Red Six was how do I, how do I help to, uh, to solve this? Um, as it turns out, I came back to the UK and I, and I moved to Santa Monica in Los Angeles and I decided for, uh, for another reason, my passion for flying, I wanted to get back to flying. It turns out that I hadn't been doing it for a number of years with everything that was on my plate. So I walked into a flight school at Santa Monica and I said, hey, I'd like to learn to fly. And this kid is, 20 years old takes me up and he shows me a turn and a stall and everything. He tells me that I was, I was pretty good at it and I should consider a career in aviation. <laughs> <laughs> so I listened to him, got, got my, uh, my pilot's license back and started flying again. And just for, not, nothing more my love of aviation at the time. As it happens, uh, every day I'd walk into the, uh, the hangar of, of, at Santa Monica and, and sitting in the, the corner of the hangar was, uh, 
an airplane called a Bokut. Uh, the Bokut is an experimental airplane. It's a pusher. It's an evolution of the Long Easy, but it, uh, it was designed and created by a, a gentleman called Dave Ronenberg. And Dave was, I guess, one of the most prolific builders of Long Easies uh, back in the day. The Bokut, fundamentally different capability. It's a, it's a 9G airplane, you know, fully aerobatic, composite, carbon fiber, retractable undercarriage. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's a pretty fast airplane, which we'll talk about here in a second. And it's beautiful. And I struck up a friendship with Dave over a period of time. And, you know, he allowed me to work on his airplane just as a, as a mechanic whilst I was thinking about what are my next steps in life? What do I want to do? And so I'd work on this beautiful airplane. And one day, a couple of months later, he walked into the hangar with a look of astonishment on his face. And he said, you're an F-22 pilot? And I said, oh, yes, sir. He goes, why haven't you told me this? I said, that was a little while ago now. Lots has happened since then. And he said, well, look, would you like to fly my airplane? And to be clear, he doesn't let anyone fly his airplane. So I was a huge privilege. And I jumped into the front seat of this Bokut. And it's like being out on the end of a broomstick again. It's like flying a little little fighter airplane, a kind of flying I didn't really think I'd, I'd do again. I fell in love with the airplane really quickly. Um, and over over a period of time, I decided that I wanted a passion project for, for no other reason than a pure passion project, something to get my teeth into and call it my own sort of personal reward, I guess, for you know, over the last six or seven years. And so I decided I would like to build an airplane. And so one day I approached Dave and I said, hey, Dave, I'm thinking about building an airplane. Great, he said. And I said, yeah, I'd like to build a Bokut. Would you help me? And he said, absolutely not. I said, oh, <laughs> did not expect that. I <laughs> did not expect that. As much. <laughs> he said, uh, I said, okay, can you elaborate? And he said, look, Dan, really seriously, they, this business, this airplane is costing a lot. They'd only ever manufactured 70 kits, I think, way back in the day. Um There'd been a number of accidents in the airplane. A lot of the kits were missing, couldn't find. They're really hard to get hold of. And and one of his his best friends was a former demo pilot for the airplane. was was killed in an accident in in Santa Paula, a GLOC accident uh, back in the day. Actually, around about the time I joined the air force, ironically. And so he, he said no. And so I just backed off and uh, and left it for a while. And uh, and then one day, a couple months later, I walked into the hangar and his airplane's outside. And he said, Hey, come jump into this uh, jump to the airplane. We're going to go down to the desert. I said, where are we going, Dave? And he said, you'll see. So we jumped in the back of the airplane. We flew down to uh, French Valley into Mexico, and we were met there by a gentleman called Sam Puma. And Sam is a fighter pilot of a bygone era, Vietnam uh, era, um, cowboy hat on, as bow-legged as it gets, with a cigar and a, and a song. Uh, a wonderful, like an old-school old school fighter pilot, wonderful individual. And he took me into the desert to, to meet his wife. We had lunch with him and his wife at, the, uh, at their house. They were really gracious, but I didn't know why we were there. And, after lunch, Sam said, well, should we show him? I said, show me what? And they took me into the desert, and in the desert, in a, in a barn under a top on him was uh, a remaining Bokut kit in pieces. And uh, they looked at me, and they said, look, this airplane was Rick, the, the gentleman who was killed back in the uh, in the accident at Santa Paula all those years ago. said, this airplane's been sitting in this desert for 21 years waiting for you. It was the last Bokut I'm going to build. Um, wow. And he, and so we committed to building the finest example of the Bokut that we could for no other reason than, than I, I wanted to build an airplane and I wanted to do it justice. So completely irrational decision. I decided to build a Bokut and we, we set to work. <laughs> now, here, here's something interesting. When I, when I came to the Raptor back in 2006, and we talked about it right at the beginning of the podcast, but I was the, uh, obviously the first, uh, non-American, but in the early days, everyone on the Raptor was super experienced. So when I got there, I was also the only guy without a call sign. 
And so, you know, and they're like, well, hell, we got to give you a call sign. So I go through the ceremony, you know how it goes, and I end up getting, yeah. I get, I get the call sign formed. So hold that thought. No one knows this. And now it's like 2017, 18. I'm in the desert negotiating for this airplane. And one day, Sam calls me up out of the blue with uh, no, no knowledge of this at all. He said, hey, Dan, he goes, this airplane's been sitting here for 21 years. He goes, I've finally dug out the paperwork on it. It turns out it was one of the early pre-production versions. Serial number on this airplane is 007. Wow. I said, wait, Sam, what? He said, yeah. I said, let me tell you a story. I told him, he said, holy crap. He said, just take the, take the airplane to us. Um, and so, uh, so this weird kind of serendipitous series of events led me to, to start building 007. I didn't know why I was building it at the time, but I, life was obviously saying, Dan, build this airplane, right? And so I started yeah, building it. And then literally one day into my life, walk a, a couple of individuals into the hangar at Santa Paula's and building it and, and both with with rich backgrounds in both reality and, and augmented reality. And one of the individuals had, in 2015 had done a world first in, in virtual reality. He'd taken, uh, his name was Glenn Snyder. The other gentleman's uh, name was Nick Bichnich. And Glenn had, uh, had taken a race car, put a real race car on a real racetrack with a real race car driver, put them into a virtual reality helmet. At the same time in the U.S., that was in England, at the same time put a race car, a race car driver, um, on a real racetrack in the U.S., both of these guys went into virtual helmets, met each other in a virtual world, and raced race cars, real cars, against each other, blind to the outside world. And as soon as I saw that, I started connecting the dots and started thinking, hmm. So I asked the obvious, you know, five-girl, fighter-pilot questions. Is, guys, is that possible in airplanes? And uh, they scratched their nuggets for a couple of weeks and came back to me with, yeah, we think it is. But technically difficult, we think it's possible. And the next question I ask is, is that possible in augmented reality rather than virtual reality? The distinction being, obviously, for those that are not familiar, virtual, entirely different world. You know, we could be on the Caribbean, sailing wherever it is, like the holodeck type thing, Star Trek. Augmented is a, is a more complex problem to solve because we seek to put virtual entities into the real world. And I knew that no one would allow pilots to fly around in the virtual world. So I said, is it possible to put augmented reality uh, into the real world in airplanes? And they looked at me as if I was an idiot and said, no. No, why? And they said, because augmented reality doesn't work outdoors or in dynamic environments. They said, no, why? And long story short, I kept asking why, like a five-year-old, until we came up with a thesis. And the thesis was, we think we can put virtual airplanes up into the real world. And if we can do that, that potentially offers an entirely new paradigm in training. So I called the Air Force up and said, hey, remember me? I think I can you know, save you hundreds of million dollars, of dollars a year, solve your pilot shortage, and allow you to train against any nuclear threat. And the guy on the end of the phone went, go on. <laughs> so we, we, we ended up having this conversation. I flew out to Vegas to an Afworks event, met with the head of Afworks at the time and pitched him. And Afworks agreed to support us. And so we, we started, we started this journey towards seeing if we could put virtual airplanes up into the real world. Now to do that, we would need a test airplane. Well, guess what I was building at the time? A test airplane. So the I'm building this parachute, and all of a sudden, the first wire is about to go, and I meet these guys. We come up with this idea, and there's this airplane staring us in the face, going, "Hey, put this tech into me." And so, yeah. 007 ended up being built around the system we're calling ATARS, Airborne Tactical Augmented Reality System. And we started we started developing this for the, the Air Force. Now they gave us two key targets. One was, okay, guys, these are some big claims you're making. Go prove that this is is possible initially on the ground in a static environment, albeit in a cockpit. And we did that back in February of last year. So we had a bunch of folks come to see us, including guys from the uh, test pilot school, in the weapons school, ACC, ATC, ETN, they all came out. 
they sat in the airplane and they were able to fly an augmented reality mission. I, they, they went through a tanker, they took some gas and they joined the wing of an F-22, went downrange, did a 2v2 against two SU-57s, albeit in a static environment on the ground in a, in a helmet system that we built, which is one of the, the four modules that, that comprises the overall system. Uh, and it, it worked, it was a clunky prototype, but the thesis was solid and it, it proved that it was, it was going to be possible. And then I was able to raise, you know, uh, about uh, two and a half million dollar seed round of, of venture capital. Um, led by Moonshot's Capital here in LA. And that gave us the runway to, to march towards our second demonstration. Our second demonstration was quite obviously go prove that this works in the end. And that demo was packed for November of last year. And the, the targets given to us, I think our testers actually were, okay, guys, before we start thinking about putting airplanes flying around in the sky, uh, correctly geolocated and referenced to the real world, those are big claims. So let's just start with a fixed object in space. Uh, and, and see if we can locate an augmented reality object up in space that we can fly around and make sense. So we became known for this big cube that we built up in, uh, it was floating around the skies of Southern California. And it's a 500 foot by 500 foot framed cube with no sides in augmented reality. And so you can, you can take off in, in a real airplane, fly up to it, you can observe it in the distance. And as you, as you get closer to it, it becomes a big old, uh, cube floating in the sky and you can fly around it. In relationship to it, so you observe size aspects, um, um, uh, crossing angles, um, texture, tonality, brightness, all of this stuff. It looks and feels like a real object flying up in the sky. And that's so compelling that I can fly the airplane through the cube because it, you know, it's, it's framed with no sides. And as I fly through it, it's such an immersive experience and I'm careful not to hit the side of the cube with the, uh, the wing of the airplane. And that was our sort of criteria for the next stage of success from the, from the Air Force. We actually exceeded that back in August of last year. What's the next hurdle to overcome or what's next? Because, I mean, the potential for this is so great to be able to enhance training and provide, you know, realistic threat replication to so many different applications. I mean, from guys on the ground to, you know, flying fighters, which is obviously the, the primary focus here. But what, what's next? You're, you're absolutely right. So, I mean, look, the the ability to do this, I mean, it, it's, a, it's an SU-57 flying its own circle right now. And, and we can BFM around it. We can track. We can barrel roll around. All, all the stuff. And it looks and feels like real airplane. The tracking is robust. In terms of our pathway forward, we were awarded a, a small uh, CIBA Phase two from the Air Force through, through F-Works. And, uh, and then we were invited out to uh, the WEPTAC in January of this year. So we, we took the airplane out the web pack and we did demos to a bunch of, uh, of senior folks, including um, a couple of senior generals in the Air Force. I got uh, I was fortunate enough to sit to Comac and the new CISA, General Brown, uh, talk them through what it is we're doing and, and, and where I think the value proposition is because you're quite right. The, the genesis of this was, hey, if, if we can do this, if this thesis is robust and works, uh, we can plug into the broader ecosystem of LVC then now all of a sudden you offer a, a 100% training solution. And, and therein lies the rub because LVC so far, I think, is synthetic training is, in my mind, is undoubtedly the way the future has to be. Right? We cannot solve it with existing assets. Private contractors are not the, not the long-term solution um, because they're just not relevant you know, in terms of their, their ability to simulate near-peer threats. But if we can do it through synthetics and live virtual constructive in the BVR environment, I always, I always believed in LVC, but I always thought it was a fifty percent solution. Why is that? Because you know, as soon as you transition into within visual range, there's no, there's no one there to train against. And so we are the missing piece of live virtual constructive. We put virtual airplanes up into the real world, and if we have the intelligence on the platforms, then for us it's just code, and we can, we can code anything to fly 
any way we want, any kind of performance envelope. If we've got the intel and we have the code, we can just plug it in and we can train against anything. The, the, if you can imagine it, you know, we can do it. The, the message here is we kind of cracked the code and, and, and this stuff is working right now today. To paint the picture for those who might not be too familiar or as familiar with it as you and I, but AFWorks is basically the Air Force's innovation cell. They're throwing a lot of money towards AFWorks. So businesses that have ideas that might improve things such as training, creating efficiencies and things like that. It's streamlining the process. And you've gotten money through AFWorks because, again, they see the value in this. And WebTAC, uh, all the weapons officers, so the tactical experts, the generals, the leaders, and Air Combat Command, those are the guys who are the tactical geniuses, if you will, and that are at the forefront of what we need to be doing and what we need to go fight emerging threats and to remain on the leading edge. Again, garnered their attention, their ear with this, because what you mentioned about the live virtual reconstruction or live virtual construction LVC, that's what I was used to utilizing. And again, it's kind of allows the beyond visual range, look, sort, and fight, because it's just a computer generated target that appears through data link on your radar that you can shoot. But when it comes into the close in merge as the fight's evolving, there's no one there. And that's the problem you're solving here. And it's a really complex problem. That, that's absolutely right. And, and so I, you know, that, and you, you start thinking about, you know, well, we get, we get the question a lot. Why, why, why is there such an emphasis on with the visual range training? And, and you, all, all combat aviators understand out there that why it is so imperative that we, we train, you know, within visual range. It's not the wars that we're fighting today that we need to be worried about. It's the ones we haven't thought of yet. And if you start yep. thinking about near-peer adversaries, um, you know, you bet your dollar we're going to the merge. And you, you, you know, you, you know that we need to be able to train and survive and prevail in, in the within visual range environment. So it's, it's, it's crucial that we are able to train there. Uh, what we are doing, uh, offers commanders the, you know, it's an indigenous sort of red air squadron at the flip of a switch. Um, the technology is getting better and getting better at an alarmingly fast rate. And that's what you mentioned, PTN, Pilot Training Next. So I think they're on their third iteration, yep. and this is in the past like 18 months or so. Yep. But that's the Air Force saying, hey, there's a better way to leverage technology learning rather than the way we've been teaching pilots for the past 50 years, yes, has worked, but we need to adapt because one, we have a pilot shortage and we don't have the iron, the people in order, enough of them to produce more pilots. But like leveraging something like here, if you can put up a kid on his first couple formation rides and he's flying in augmented reality with a wingman, like you might achieve that objective without actually having with freeing up another resource, a physical resource of an instructor and another plane to go do the same thing without before they meet together. Without a doubt. And, and we're actually working closely with pilot uh, training next motor Riley who's, who's down there. Uh, world-class. I know, yeah, I, yeah. I know motor, I know motor very well. Yeah. yeah world-class individual working very closely with him. I'm, I'm a real believer in what he's doing and, and he's been really incredibly supportive for us, but you know, they're really innovating, innovating hard. And a lot of it is based around data. Uh, and, and, and I really support his mission and what he and his team down there are, are doing at Stella. We're actually integrating right now into our, uh, into a T6, um, and, and PTN are going to be taking a look at, uh, at this tech in, in a T6. And, and teams, um, you know, when they could, they can bring it to bed for, for use with students. So that's one of the projects we're doing for our Scylla right now. 
we went over to, uh, to Air Combat Command and Air Combat Command is supporting us towards a, uh, a civil phase three now, which will allow us to, uh, to develop it out and, and, and sell units of, of this over the next few years. Um, we're also talking to the test pilot school about integration and testing into a T-38 and an F-16. Uh, towards the back end of uh, this year into next year. So lots of exciting stuff happening. Uh, the, the value proposition for this is, uh, is immense. As I say, we're, you know, we're the early stages right now, but I think everyone that has seen it and flown with it, even now, uh, we're getting overwhelmingly positive feedback. There is value right now in, in what we're building. The ultimate shippable product is, is really compelling. Yeah, it sounds like it would be an absolute game changer for what we're doing today and really what what everyone needs as far as being able to to train to the next threat yeah. and then be able to you know produce ourselves out of this pilot crisis to a certain extent but really then there's future applications of training and you know really providing the enhanced training that you just can't replicate without real assets without a doubt and and it, we kind of link back to the very start of the conversation when we talked about uh, the importance of confidence right in kids and 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 I always I always lamented um, losing um, students for the sake of maybe one more look or one more sortie, right? And when you're, you know, you're capital constrained, of course, commanders and leaders are protecting those sorties and they only have so much budget to go around. But when we start really thinking about it, it's not how many sorties they get, it's how many looks at the problem set we want them to solve they get. This technology offers a massive, massive value proposition through efficiency within individual sorties to just hack, reset, hack, reset, hack, reset. And how many students will we ultimately end up getting through flying training that maybe we might otherwise lose that have the direct impact on our ability to project strength on the front line, you know, for the sake of one more look or one more sortie? Well, you know, if, if we're getting maybe, you know, 10 extra repetitions in each individual sortie because we can use this technology efficiently, uh, then now we start to see direct impact in terms of our physical production of pilots intuitively and just big picture. The value proposition of this tech is immense. What would you say is the toughest part for this business venture that you're currently undergoing with Red Six? Um, so, it's, well, outside of coronavirus and all the stuff we're dealing with right now, yeah. um, look, I, I think the things that, the things that um, traditionally get investors or, or people away from dealing with DOD is the, the sheer bureaucracy that you have to go through and, and uh, the length of time to actually physically pr- procure, you know, technology. There are also some barriers to entry to, like, you know, large defense primes and things like that. I think. The Air Force are getting better, and, and airports have to take a lot of credit for that. And then they realize that historically, DOD and uh, and the big primes have kind of ruled the roost in terms of the, the te- technological delivery to the front line. And the reality of it is now that more companies out here, like Red Six, we're innovating so much faster than, than, than large companies, and certainly way faster than DOD. Technology and innovation in itself is is useless if you don't engender and embrace a culture that, that allows innovation yeah. and embraces innovation, right? Because in essence, you just end up developing, you know, technology in a vacuum. Um, and, and I think, I really truly, truly believe that, you know, senior leadership within the Air Force and within the military, they get it, right? They understand we have to innovate. And, and you and I on the front line, the guys, the guys that are clamoring for capability, we all get it. It's in that middle echelon tier, right? It tends to get lost and blocked and everything. And that, that's where it all goes wrong. Yep. And it is, it, I think it's immensely frustrating for everyone because I would say, look, even at the political level, they get it, right? We all want this to happen. And it is breaking down those barriers, those barriers that exist in middle management within the military where it all goes wrong. We must start from top to bottom. Uh, embracing a culture that enables innovation, because if not, we're, we're just going to leave so much value on the table. But it's so true that there is somewhere in between the top and the bottom, 
there is like the right climate right now to embrace this type of technology, this type and, and conceptually across the board for all, all domains that you guys are doing out there at Red Six. It's never a better time because there's, there's a crisis and now everyone's looking to, to address it. Before we transition, because I know I've taken a bunch of your time, Bond. I do. Oh, you're um, good. I, I, I have a bunch of people that have asked questions, which we're going to do a, a Q&A session here, which be a separate episode up on Patreon for free. Anyone can go listen to it. But people are looking for more information about Red Six. Is it red6ar.com the best spot to go? And then you're on Instagram as yep. Red Six CEO, right? Yeah, Red Six CEO, um, red6ar.com. Is a, is a good resource, is a good website, good demo video up there. Um, we're out here in California. I, I, I tend to be as responsive as I can be to inbound requests. So uh, th- those are good places to get me on on LinkedIn as uh, Daniel Robinson as well. So uh, yeah, multiple multiple avenues to us. We, we're always we're always open to collaboration. And you know, if anyone would like to, to learn any more about the business, feel free to reach out to me. I'll I'll do the best I can. Okay. So look, all of us, please, um, let's facilitate a culture of innovation because the, the threats out there are real and without innovation, we're going to fall way behind. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Shaq, that's the best way to, I think, end the podcast. Bond, I, I do appreciate you taking the time here. We're going to roll into a Q&A, which again will be over on Patreon. Um, thanks again for the time. And I look forward to seeing what Red Six does because uh, I think the technology you guys are bringing to the table is really going to be a force multiplier and enhance the training to keep us on the leading edge in the future. So thanks again. Cool. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Afterburn Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to subscribe and leave me a rating or review over on iTunes. And if you're looking for more content, swing over to patreon.com backslash the Afterburn Podcast for more content. But until next time, don't bring a week. <laughs>